Hi, this is Greg Fraser. You are listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, how's it going? It's going good. Hey, Ilya, you were just in Hawaii. I guess that's true. I was. I was on vacation for the first time in, well, uh, 2020, early January 2020. So All I can say to that is, what's a vacation? Never been on one. Yeah, it's this weird sort of ritual thing that people sometimes do where they stop working for a few days. Mm. And mm. Uh, yeah, and now I'm back working again. So amazing. <laughs> weird, weird. Well, welcome back to the land of COVID everywhere. Yes, exactly. Nothing quite like traveling during COVID. That's exciting times. It sounds horrifying, and I'm glad that I'm not doing it. Uh, yeah, we were extremely safe, but at the same time, who knows yeah. anymore? So I, the first thing we did when we got back is we all went and got tested. So That's a very fun, family-friendly activity. So. It is. To- totally family-friendly. Congratulations <laughs> on the vacation and uh, on what I can only presume were negative PCR tests. It literally was like an hour ago, so we don't have the results just yet, but we're all feeling okay, so chances are we're, we're negative. So what could go wrong? So, uh, so Ilya, who is on the show today? Hey, Greg Fraser is on the show today. That is so awesome. He is, uh, he's amazing, and I want to say right up front, he doesn't talk very much about the upcoming The Batman. We mostly talk about this little indie film he made called Dune. Yeah, no, no well, one saw it. Yeah, No one saw it. Um, <laughs> but he did say he would come back when The Batman comes out. And much like the Batman, he would return. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he, he will be back. Hey, uh, can I pitch you a, a super crackpot idea? Oh, uh, I can't uh, wait. Uh, yeah, go for it. It just occurred to me that we have spoken to Wally Pfister and Larry Fong and Greg Fraser, all of whom have shot Batman movies. That's right. That's right. What if we did a Batman panel? I love it. It would be a, fun. A bat panel, as it were. The bat panel. <laughs> You'd have to, <laughs> have to introduce it in a really deep, gravelly voice. We're we're missing a few uh, Batman DPs. That's but, true, uh, but, but we could we, we could probably track them down. <laughs> so I I believe we could. So let's get into our close focus. Our close focus is really just award season. Award season is upon us. As we're recording this today, we had the SAG Award nominations come out. And uh, like every time every nominations come out, I heard lots of uh, grumblings, mostly from film Twitter. Which uh, what's, what's film Twitter? Film Twitter, just the people on Twitter who are talking oh, gotcha. about movies. Okay, it's, okay, okay. It's, 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 I, I, no. I was like, is there something I don't know about called Film Twitter? No. Its no. own special Twitter for film? No, it's just, you would be hard-pressed to find a better group of people on Earth than horror movie Twitter. The people who are into <laughs> horror movies are very supportive of each other and really nice people. Uh, film Twitter can get, uh, they're very nice for the most part. They can get a little catty. People can get a little catty on, on the Twitters about movies. So I did see some complaints. And then also, uh, with l- the least fanfare in our lifetime, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, of whom we have made fun of many times. That's true. Just had the Golden Globes this week. Uh, no broadcast, no nothing. But it's interesting to see who won all the Golden Globes. Who won? <laughs> Was it, uh, uh, Power of the Dog won Best Motion Picture Drama. Best TV Series went to Succession. Hmm. Best Director went to Jane Campion for Power of the Dog. Uh, and we may or may not have an interview with her DP for Power of the Dog coming up. Hmm. 
Nicole Kidman won for Best Actress in a Motion Picture. Do, do we want to go through all of them? No, we don't. Okay, it sounds like, though, it happened and no one's really talking about it. It's like there's a collective, I won't say media blackout, but I, it's strange. It's been 48 hours and I haven't really seen much of anything. I mean, the thing about the Golden Globes was always that they got big celebrities and they got them drunk and they... <laughs> kind of were a little looser than we're used to seeing them on, uh, you know, their Tonight Show interview or their Oscar acceptance speech. It was always a little more raw and loose and free. And that was always fun. And uh, without that, you kind of go, well, what's the point? I mean, like I actually, if I run the same thought experiment with the Oscars and I go, if there was no Oscar ceremony to watch, do I care who won? And the answer is I do. I would I would pay attention to who won the Oscars. But I, mm. I probably, uh, I, I couldn't tell you who won Golden Globes except for when like movies that really shouldn't win anything like the Johnny Depp movie, The Tourist won a Golden Globe, you know, like mm. nothing against all the people who made it, but it was just like, it didn't do particularly well, didn't really resonate with audiences, wasn't, isn't really a touchstone of that year, but won a Golden Globe. And it's because, you know, as a lot of people had said over and over again, the Golden Globes had a reputation for being kind of for sale. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, to me, the interesting thing about that and the SAG Awards and, you know, SAG obviously is only dealing with actors, but it's like what level of indicator is that going to be of not just are those actors going to win, but like what are the movies that are going to be the big buzz movies going into the Oscars that might end up winning Oscars? And I feel like sometimes that ends up splashing up on our uh, cinematographical shores over here when, you know, like the movies that get a lot of buzz or sometimes, as was the case last year with Mank, I loved Mank, and I think a lot of people really liked Mank a lot, but the cinematography was probably where most of the accolades were focused. Didn't win Best Picture. And so sometimes, I don't want to act like it's a consolation prize, but sometimes when a movie is, when we know it's a solid, amazing, great movie, that those movies sometimes end up if they don't win best picture, they end up getting best cinematography. So it's, it's just kind of interesting to kind of look at this and say like, okay, well like where's the heat? Hmm. Because I think that's really all it is right now. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Well, award season uh, means lots of screenings. It means probably no parties this year. <laughs> mm-hmm. Probably means some fairly virtual events, maybe for people, because we are now reaching the absolute peak. You know, Sundance yeah. is Sundance is no longer in person. They changed it, so it's all only all virtual now. It'll be very interesting to see how the next uh, couple months play out here. When our uh, good friend Janelle Riley from Variety, I think a lot of the Q and A's that she's doing this year are being done virtually. We she was starting to do them in person. I actually went and saw Annette with the the two guys from Sparks. They're doing a Q and A afterwards, but that was like two months ago. It was a simpler time when uh, <laughs> when you you would feel safe in a movie theater with an N95 mask over your nose and mouth, and now I would not. I watched Janelle Riley this morning interviewing uh, Alana Haim uh, about licorice pizza. That was fun. She loves that movie. Oh, my God. Well, hey, let's get to the interview with Greg Fraser. Here he is. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. We are here for a second time. Very excited with uh, Greg Fraser, cinematographer. We've, we've had you on the show before. Thank you so much for coming back on. And your newest film that is out is Dune. Couldn't be bigger. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Always really fun to talk. So thank you. 
there is too much to talk about with Dune. Dune is just an enormous, enormous undertaking. But before we get into it, I wanted to ask you about when they released the iPhone Pro Max 13 or the iPhone 13 Pro Max, you made a demo film with Catherine Bigelow shot entirely on that film and they had some of the behind the scenes stuff on it. And we actually talked about it a little bit on the show because it really did look like that phone was like a quantum leap ahead for people who might consider making a film on their phone. Uh, can you talk a little bit about working on that project and how you approached filmmaking on a phone. I bet a lot of our listeners who have a kick-ass phone might even be interested in some of the tricks and tips that you might have had from uh, from that experience. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I took away from that process is that that Apple, uh, you know, again, without wanting to sound like I'm shilling for Apple, of course, but they're working very, very hard at making a phone that and a, and a camera on a phone that's extraordinarily powerful, mm-hmm. you know, and I have had some pushback since that saying, well, so you'd shoot a film on this thing. I'm like, well, I don't know if I ever said that, to be frank. But yeah. what I did say, and I and I will say it again, is that it is very viable to shoot a, a something longer form on this phone, as it was also, you know, in the previous incarnations. But there's a few extra tools on this phone that make it more cinematic. So yeah. one of the really interesting parts of it is the focus fall off on the video. And that's something that, I think that the bigger film camera manufacturers should start looking at in that ability to be able to create focus fall off electronically as well as optically. Now, I will say this, I'm not suggesting that one day we're all going to be shooting, you know, um, June part two or part three or (laughs) Batman part 10 on an iPhone. I would never go out on a limb like that and say that. But the point that I was getting at with anything that I've said about it was that this device, this product is getting better and better and better and better. And what is great is that everybody has this thing in their pocket. Yeah. So what the really exciting part for me is to see what will happen, let's say, when my when my six-year-old daughter uh, gets her first iPhone, you know, maybe in a few years. Well, that's hopefully not too soon. But, but you know, <laughs> the, the ideas that she has... We, the, to be able to create stories on this product that sits in her pocket, you know, and I, I, that's exciting to me because normally filmmakers can, in the past, have only been able to make films when they've had access to equipment and people and yeah. resources. And this thing, having a phone, which everybody has, will allow us to see a new wave of filmmaking from people who ordinarily may not have had an opportunity to an access to the equipment. So it's kind of that democratization of filmmaking that's super exciting. And although you would never shoot a Dune sequel on that kind of a phone, if you were doing a TV series, let's say at the level of Ozark or something like premium, nice TV show, and you had to get an insert shot and there was no other way to do it, would you shoot it on that phone and and stick it in the show? Uh, I, I don't know. I can't answer that because I haven't done comparative tests you know, like there are limitations with the phone. There, as there are limitations with all things, all cameras. You know, some cameras are too big. Some cameras are, you know, big. Even though they're small, they're still pretty big. So when you're choosing a format for a for a film or for a short project, you know, you take those things into account: the size of the camera, you know, the recording methodology, the compression, the color, you know, all those things. So it's not a you know, like, oh, suddenly everyone's shooting a, a film on the iPhone. I mean, I, I again, I got I got some comments from that, which I thought were very, very short-sighted in that people go like, oh, well, you're shooting, you're shooting your next projects on an iPhone. It's like, I never said that. Yeah, yeah. But it's getting better and better and better. So that if somebody came and said, hey, 
There's a new film out. It's amazing. And it was shot on the iPhone. I wouldn't bat an eyelid. It wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Well, and, uh, you know, big Sundance winner Tangerine years ago was shot on, I think it was an iPhone 5. And then Steven Soderbergh just a few years ago shot Unsane on, yeah. I want to say, yeah. his iPhone 10. Yeah. But what I thought was interesting about your demo in particular was when I saw the even the trailer for Unsane, and I'm a big fan of Steven Soderbergh's, when I saw the trailer for it, it's like, I didn't know immediately that it was shot on a phone, but as soon as I saw that, I was like, that's what it was about it. You know, it's like, there's a very specific look to that generation of iPhone and earlier, whereas the, dem- yes. the demo that uh, you and Catherine Bigelow did on the iPhone 13 Pro Max... I didn't even think about what it was shot on. Like nothing about it made me go like, what? That doesn't look right. And and I'm not saying that uh, yeah. Unsane looked wrong. I think Soderbergh was embracing the phoniness, the P-H-O-N-E-ness of the look and steering into it. And I felt like your project with Catherine Bigelow didn't do that at all. Yeah. I mean, we, we both liked the fact, I mean, Catherine, one thing I love about Catherine as a filmmaker is she eschews all of the conventional film things that occur on a film set. You know, she, definitely doesn't like when there's too many people on set. She definitely doesn't like it when there's cranes and there's this and there's condors and there's that. Like she just loves a really simple camera and an actor. You know, she's, she's all about the sort of the, the genuineness of drama as it relates to it. So any technology that stops her from getting that performance, she tries to do away with. So there are things like the, the focus. I mean, the focus was incredible. Like you could choose your focus later. That's crazy. It is crazy. It, you know, it's, it's a digital focus fall off and some people might not like it, but I, I don't know. I, I like it when people are open-minded. You know, I, personally, I try and stay as open-minded as I can. You know, I, I find that to be something that as filmmakers get more set in their ways, they can often go, ah, well, no, you can't use that to make a movie or you can't use digital, you have to shoot film or you can't shoot film, you've got to shoot digital. Like some people go down that path with their thinking. I try and not do that. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm just sort of uh, lurking here in the shadows, but I think this is a really fantastic transition to go from talking about the technology that's inside of the iPhone to the technology workflow that was used for Dune. Because if you want to compare, you know, uh, probably the most extreme apples and oranges that that we possibly can here, because Dune, of course, you have an incredible uh, post workflow, if I I recall correctly, including a digital acquisition to film recording. Why why don't you take it away? Why don't you tell us what you guys, what you did for that? Well, let's go back a few years, right? It used to be that when you shot film, you shot film on most of the negative, and then there was a soundtrack on the piece of film. So the sound was recorded on the same piece of film, or at least there was an allocation for the sound to be placed on that piece of film later when it's projected. Mm -hmm. Once you've acquired that film, you cut your negative, edit it, and then you print it, you contact print it onto onto another piece of film, which you can then create into positives and prints from. So there was no ability to scan and rack and do all these things. It was, a, it was a very basic contact print. So as the world evolved and as digital scanners were able to scan this negative, we were able to start shooting on Super 35 and we were able to start shooting on a bigger piece of negative and we would start doing a thing called a DI, which you acquire the film on film because that was the only acquisition format, but you could then scan it and then color it digitally. But then digital cameras came in and it meant that you acquired digitally and then you worked on it digitally and you put it out digitally. And through this death by a thousand cuts, that's a negative way of basically describing it, but this is a process which is similar to a death by a thousand cuts where 
as each process comes, it's an improvement in inverted commas. But what happens is you get to the end of the process and go, oh, well, everything's digital. The whole process is digital now. I, I think we've lost something, something that we used to have back in the day when we were acquiring on film, we have lost because we're now, everything is digital. Even the lights are digital, the LEDs, they're all digital. Everything is digital. So you stand back for a second and look at the image and go, wow, it's really good. As in technically, it's really good. But is it better than back in the day when we shot on film? Now, there are some filmmakers that would categorically say no, and you know who they are. And they're 100% correct. They're 100% correct because that's what they feel. You know, and then there are other filmmakers who get rid of film and hate it because it's, a, it's an analog process that can screw up, it can scratch, it can get dusty, it can get dirty, it can weave and do all the bad things that film does. Again, inverted commas, bad. So it's like a football match. There's people with very vastly differing opinions on, on what's the best team. But in this process, when Denis and I were looking at film versus digital, which is a debate that one often has when you're starting a, a, a film, we tested film and we thought we were going to really love it and we didn't. Mm. And we tested digital and we thought we were really going to hate it and we didn't. But we didn't love it either. We didn't love the digital process. So it was something that I've been toying with. I've been playing with for a little while at Photochem, which is the idea that because we're acquiring digitally and we're outputting digitally, that there's no opportunity for an analog intermediate in there. And so we tested as an idea, this output of film in the middle of the process. And it was better. It was really good. Hmm. All the highlights started to roll off beautifully like they do on film. I'm not saying it looks like film, by the way. I'm not saying it all. So again, I'll, for the record, sit here and say, I'm not saying this is going to replace shooting on film at all. It's just another process. And it's a process that allows an analog element to interrupt the digital ones and zeros throughout the process. And it's really interesting because what happens is you start to get some of the issues that film has and some of the beautiful things that, that film has. Mm. And people may say, oh, it's just the grain or it's just this or it's just that. It's like, well, it's a combination of everything. People like to think that they understand exactly technically what it is they love or don't like, but sometimes it's just a feel, it's just a mood. Yeah. And that's what we felt when we saw the digital tests on June and the film tests. They were both too extreme in the directions that they were, they were sitting in. So by going back to film, what it did add, it added a little bit of halation in the highlights. It added a little bit of grain. Not much, by the way, not much. It took away some of the resolution, but that wasn't a bad thing. You know, it helped soften it a little bit, which again, people go, why would you want to soften it? It's like, well, you do. You do you, film... I don't know, film represents an idea, represents a piece of the, uh, the way that you see the world, you mm. know, and if it's too sharp and it's too clear, that's not how we see the world. It's not how I see the world. You know, the world's soft, but not blurry. You know, it's that balance, isn't it? I remember back at Delta when I was there in the early days of 4K, we had a document and that document listed all the negative qualities of film and all the things that we were going to strive to to get rid of. But mm -hmm. there was a uh, flip side to that document or that, that, that spreadsheet that basically said, 
the intention was at some point we would add all of these as features into the camera as as the ability to digitally program how much you wanted to add essentially as like a LUT. It's like, oh, I'd like this shot to have more noise. We're going to have the ability to add a essentially a LUT command here that there's going to be noise or gate weave yeah. or halation yeah. or roll offer or all of this stuff because the idea was at that point like, oh, we're going to try to get things better, but we still want to be able to maintain all of those functions. But I think it's interesting that so far no camera manufacturer has done that and it has kind of fall into post and even though that most of these post type of things is not exactly correct either you have to do these uh i'm going to say probably fairly cumbersome processes of of scanning and recording a photochemical process to change that that digital back into something that resembles more like what in our minds or our memory is what something should probably look like or what the world should 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 feel yeah, it's it, it is really fun and interesting to to look at what how things should feel and and um how the mind's eye remembers things and how you see things, you know, and and I've had this debate with a number of people like I know that, you know, lens companies have been striving to to make lenses with less chromatic aberration for example, you know, when it's wide open. But I I kind of like a bit of chromatic aberration in my lenses. You know, I like around the edges of things that are out of focus turning that little bit of blues. I like that. Now, technically, that's not good. So there are lots of arguments to say, it's, but it's not right. But it feels right. And it, there's, this, there's an amazing artist that I follow on Instagram. His tag is Drawings by Dylan. And he creates these incredible uh, portraits, these drawn portraits. And what I love about these drawn portraits are that they are super high res but they have dimension and they have mm. like exactly everything that we strive for as filmmakers, cinematographers. We try and create images with dimension, not 3D. Like I don't want to sit in the theater with goggles. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you want your image that you see to be dimensional and you want to be able to almost touch it or feel it. And that doesn't necessarily mean sharpness. That's where film, I think, has dimension that digital doesn't. It has a certain kind of depth to it. And that's why I think filmmakers who love film miss that with digital. I'm assuming that when you uh, when you went through and, and did that, at some point you also just looked at the digital tools that could simulate things like film grain and halation and some of the things you were looking for. Yeah, yeah. But it, it all feels faux, though. It's It's like... When we were building our house in Los Angeles, we really loved, we wanted to put a brick wall up, but we weren't allowed to put a brick wall up because there are earthquakes in Los mm. Angeles. So the builder's like, well, here are some tiles that look like bricks. I'm like, yeah, but they're not bricks. <laughs> so like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's faux and it doesn't feel right. You walk past it and it just has an aura of falseness. So, you know, it wasn't the grain that we loved and it wasn't the the halation that we loved. It wasn't the weave that we loved. It was the feel that that process gave us. Hmm. And yes, listen, a scientist can absolutely probably say, yep, but we can create that exactly. And I'm, I'm sure they're right, but there's, there'll be something missing. Even if it's just, you know, the knowledge, the belief that it, there's a piece of film underneath that. So uh, speaking also on the on the subject of realism, but kind of pivoting to the actual production, I was reading up on some of the stuff that you did on it, and there were things like in the those flying machines, the uh, what, they, what were they called? Ornithopters. Ornithopters. Like I was reading about how what probably anyone would have done some kind of typical green or blue screen, shoot it in a studio kind of a thing. You guys went the extra step for realism in filming those sequences and other sequences, and I thought 
one of the things that really came across in the movie too was kind of that relentless attention to how it would really look. What what was your thought process in doing that? And tell us like some of the lengths to which you went to do that to to create realism. This is probably the most realistic lighting exercise that I've done that I've ever you know on a, on a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really pushed to make sure that our lighting was as appropriate and correct as possible. And why that's a new idea is astounding to me. Like, again, you think about the process, the death by a thousand cuts analogy that I mentioned before, like when visual effects started becoming a thing back in the early eighties, they could really only do keys off a blue screen and a green screen because they couldn't do rotoscoping or, you know, whatever that process was, I wasn't around then, so I'm not an expert, but what happened was that blue screens and green screens got bigger to, you know, you start seeing behind the scenes shots of the Star Wars prequels and they all were shot in green screen stages. And I don't know if anyone at that point in time said to themselves quietly, well, listen, I know we can get a good key out of this, but it doesn't look real. It doesn't look right because the lighting's not correct. Yeah. But I know that was the case because during the prep for Rogue One, John Noll and I had really got long conversations about how to make the lighting as correct as possible while still giving VFX the, the ability to do the VFX that they needed. And part of that came from, you know, from the, the correct lighting, from the correct color of, of ambient daylight, which back in the day could only be tungsten because there was only tungsten space lights. Yeah. But that was trying to simulate 10,000 Kelvin coming from a blue sky. And it was just impossible. It never would do that. So coming forward to June, we had a fantastic VFX supervisor, Paul Lambert, who normally in a production meeting, it's normally me that bangs the drum about the lighting being correct with a little bit of support from the VFX soup, but normally it's me. Whereas in for June, Paul Lambert was normally the first guy who would raise his hand and go, ah, it doesn't work for me, lighting-wise. It's not good. Mm-hmm. Which is fantastic because it meant that suddenly he became the bad guy, and I got to be the <laughs> I got to be like, like oh yeah yeah what what he says yeah, yeah I'll support Paul. I was like I just want to give the guy a, a you know a big hug every day just because he was effectively we were in tandem we were lockstep the way that we were approaching it. So with the ornithopter as an example, the way that the production wanted to shoot that they wanted to shoot that on a stage because it's controlled. It doesn't matter about weather. We could be shooting it at nighttime for daytime. It didn't matter. You know what I mean? Like it, for them, it was a much better process. But in order to do that, we would have had to have, again, used green screen, blue screen, which would have given us the wrong color. Uh, to light would have been not impossible, and, and people have done it in the past, but it, it always smells a bit wrong. You know, even the best cinematographers on the best productions with the best lighting rigs, I, I think can never quite make... And an exterior shot like that look 100% correct on stage. Cutting them forward to the production saying, hey, we want to shoot on stage, and us saying no, then they go, okay, well, let's shoot it on the back lot. Let's, we've got this concrete pad. Let's shoot it on the back lot. And the issue that we had there was that around the back lot, there are buildings. So we've got to cover those buildings with something, which invariably is green screen. Even if we covered them with sand screen, it meant that the sand screen would be higher than the horizon line should be. Does that make sense? Because mm-hmm. like we're at 5,000 feet, let's say, in an ornithopter, and which means that the horizon sits pretty much right on 
the zero degree level if you're looking around. Whereas if you shoot on the back lot, the screens had to be above that point. They were at 10 degrees above or 15 degrees above, which meant that, again, that minutia was wrong. And whilst you can kind of go, yeah, you blew your eyes and it's okay, it, it wouldn't be perfect. You know what I mean? Like it just wouldn't be quite yeah. right. And so, you know, we said, well, hey, can we stick this thing on a roof of a stage? It's ridiculous. But what we did find was a hill close by to the stage, which was, I think it was an old Soviet era weapons or storage facility, like a bunkers and stuff. So it had these little mounds that then effectively looked out over Hungary and it allowed us to create a horizon line that was, it may not have been a zero or minus three degrees. It might've been plus two degrees or something, but it was so close that it was barely, barely noticeable, the difference. So it was fantastic. We felt like we were kind of where we needed to be. So hmm. that's, that's a great place to start from a VFX standpoint, because then Paul's job is adding to something that already feels good. He's not, he's not stripping back something that looks wrong and having to fix it and then, you know, add stuff in. So it, it worked really well for us. And I, again, it, it astounds me that this is a fairly new idea. It's not a new idea. It's just that I think we were able to, we had the support of the VFX supervisor, we had the support of the director, we had the support of me, the designer, like everyone who was in charge creatively all had the same drive to get it right. And it meant that we were dogged in our arguments for doing things a certain way. I feel like Denny Villeneuve is someone who pushes so hard for realism, even in a movie like Blade Runner, that's science fiction, like there's this relentless pursuit. And of course, we have a very famous version of Dune that was done in, what, 1984 by David Lynch, famous surrealist, and uh, very different. And, and actually, probably about a month before your film came out, I went and rewatched the original Dune, which I hadn't seen in years. And your whole movie looks different, is designed differently. I mean, it's based on the same source material, so there's similar overlapping things just because the story's very similar. But was there any referencing of the original? Was there any looking at it or finding anything that you were able to uh, continue or build upon or work against? Or was, was this in any way a conversation with that original movie? The conversation started and ended with, this is not that movie. <laughs> So pretty much no is the, is the short, sweet answer to that. You know, like it, I think Denis has a, a ton of respect for, for Lynch, but I, and I think he's come out on the record and, and, and said that that wasn't, that wasn't his June, you know? Yeah. That wasn't the movie that he read when he was a teenager. And again, no disrespecting that, that director. I mean, I think Lynch probably might agree given that he took his name off it already. Yeah. I think Denis kind of went. No, let's avoid, let's avoid that because that's mm. not where we're at. So for me, you know, I'm a bit of a sponge when it comes to visuals. So I avoided it like the plague. You know, I avoided seeing anything or looking at, because it, frankly, it's not that film. This is based on the book. This is source material as the book, not the film. Oh, no, no. I, I know that they're both based on the same book and they're both extremely different. And actually, I loved, uh, I know this is more of a writing and directing thing, but I loved basically saying we're only going to do half the book in the feature film, whereas the David Lynch one tried to do the whole book. So it is almost wall to wall exposition. Like it's so it's so full of exposition because there's so much information to get to get across. And I feel like this 
you know, allow the characters to breathe a little more. And I thought that it was interesting that it takes this, you know, ostensibly science fiction slash fantasy world and makes it feel very character based. Now, was that the approach? Well, you know, the thing that Denis, that I love about Denis' work, and I think the thing that he, that perhaps drew him to me as well, is that every film that I do, I would like to believe, is based solely and squarely on characters. Mm-hmm. It's got nothing to do with that it's set in the 80s or it's set in the 1800s or that it's set in the future or that it's set in India. It could be set anywhere and it could be staged anywhere and it could be any style. But ultimately at its core, the film is a character piece. And I think that everything else is just noise around that, you know, and, and I, I don't know, it's that thing when you're, when you're having a conversation with somebody like you, there might be distractions going on around you, but you focus yourself on that person, what they're saying. Now, literally, yes, that's what we're doing with film. We're focused on somebody. But I think just as the approach is that we're, we're focusing character to character to character to character. And that, I think, is a much more enjoyable process to watch. Let's move on, if we can, to the Batman, which is a heavily anticipated you know was like a lot of things like dune in fact i think also was supposed to come out a lot earlier than it did because of the pandemic and uh i have to say that like i've seen every trailer whenever they drop a new trailer i watch it and i'm blown away by the creative approach that you seem to have taken the movie and obviously you're you can't give away any plot spoilers or anything that isn't in the trailer but i was curious when the first real trailer dropped a few months ago it really like I felt like I was watching something set almost in the universe of uh, of David Fincher's Seven, shot by Darius Kanji. Can you talk about like what were the references or where did the idea for the world come from? Because I feel like we've got the the Tim Burton Batman world now, and then we also obviously have the Christopher Nolan world, which is like hyper realistic, and then we have yep. uh, the Zack Snyder one, which is extraordinarily stylized. And you found yet another look that I hadn't seen kind of represented in that world, or frankly in any comic book world before well i mean obviously yeah i mean as you touched on the the film hasn't come out and i can't really speak too much about it Mm -hmm. but one thing i will say is that try and go back and have a look at what matt reeves has done in the past you know and also what i've done with matt reeves in the past so matt reeves and i did let me in Mm. which was love it the the english version of let the right one in the book and there was also a european film as well and he then went and did The Apes 2 and 3, which Michael Saracen photographed for him beautifully. And so just watch those films. He's incredibly talented. But the film, I mean, and another thing you can tell too is how different it is to Dune. Like it's diametrically opposed. Yeah. One's dry, no water, bright. The other one's not that. <laughs> so, Yeah. Well, that's excellent. Well, I look forward after the Batman comes out, if you're willing to come back on and talk about it, because uh, I'm very interested in not just in what appears to be a great Batman movie, but just sort of like reinterpreting a world that, you know, in my lifetime, there have been, I think, like four incarnations of it that were all fully realized, including yours. Yep. And yep. it's always interesting to see, like, when I heard that they were making another Batman movie, I was like, all right, cool. But then when I saw the trailer, I was like, this is, I haven't seen this take. This is a completely fresh take on the material, visually. Yep. I, and I agree. And we worked incredibly hard at keeping a, a visual through line. There's a really a lot to talk about. And even just the fact that, again, everybody's seen a Batman before. Everybody has an opinion of what they want out of Batman. And it's scary. I mean, you know, Matt, he, Matt's gutsy. You know, he's a gutsy director. He, he takes 
projects that people have an opinion about and uh, people are going to have a very strong opinion about Batman. The thing that's really exciting about technology right now is that it's, it's evolving and changing and, and there are things that are being built by, by technologists to help artists. Mm-hmm. And one of the major reasons for me wanting to do The Mandalorian early on was, of course, I'm a Star Wars fan and I, I really wanted to do Star Wars, of course, but I did Rogue One, so I felt like I had my share of that. But what I did realize was the power of the technology of the volume was going to be incredible. I wanted to be involved because I wanted to be, I wanted to set the bar at a certain level. Do you know what I mean? Like I wanted to, to say, all right, well, selfishly, because I want to use it again in the future and I want to use it with other directors. I want to use it with Denis Villeneuve. I want to use it with Matt Reeves. Like I want to use the technology for, for drama as well as for science fiction. So therefore, I want to set the bar at a certain level that I'm happy to work with in the future. Uh, I was just going to bring this full circle back to the iPhone because, you know, I want to underline actually the, the point that, that you just made about cinematographers and their tools. And I think it's more than just uh, having to do with with a volume or an LED wall. I'd say it, it's uh, a little bit more historic, though, and, and covers a whole range of tools. And to go back to something like an iPhone, I had a call the other day from a very large television company that they said, hey, well, you know, we need to get iPhones for this cooking show because uh, they say we need to do 240 frames per second. And the cameras that we're using, very popular, very well-known, major brand, uh, doesn't do 240 frames, so they're worthless. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I sent the executive producer a link to another friend of the show who shot Chef's Table. Adam Bricker. And I said, hey, here's a chef's table. They never went above 120 frames per second. Would this work for you? Is this the, is this look? Because the cameras you have already will do this. And here's something shot on the iPhone at 240 frames. And you tell me. And I just got a, a very short one sentence reply that said, thanks for this. And they, they stuck with the cameras they were using. And I think that in this world right now, marketing, uh, I would say since social media, marketing now has become even more ingrained with technology that the true experts of technology who are the technologists and the, the people who use them, their opinions are overridden by executive producers and other folks who just say like, oh, I, I heard this marketing piece about how this is the best in the world and this is what we have to do. Yep. And ultimately, I'm really glad that there are technologists and knowledgeable cinematographers like yourself who can uh, speak truth to power to the people out there who believe <laughs> the marketing hype and say, oh, no, we have to use X. X is the only thing we can do because I was told this is the best in the world by someone I trust, not that they totally. actually tested it or used it or anything else. Exactly. Like this is where I think the iPhone be able to do 240 frames, being able to do that depth in camera thing. Like it may not be the type of thing that I use for say June part two, but let's talk again in 2042 when I'm about to do a movie or yeah, maybe I'm not by then, but like <laughs> maybe Red or Ari have introduced elements like that into their cameras. You know, the, the Sony FX3, for example, you know, mm. this amazing, amazing yeah. prosumer camera. I'm about to use that on a on a film I'm shooting in Thailand. It, it's so good. I'm about to sh- <laughs> it's ridiculous. I'm about to shoot good. the entire film on this camera. And it's so ridiculous that it's so small and it can it's such high ISO for such a small camera. So, you know, whilst that camera may not be appropriate for something else that I'm doing, camera companies should look at that and say, "Well, if Sony's doing that with an FX3, surely we can do that with with our camera. And you know, we saw that with Red. I mean, Red is fantastic to come out with a 4K camera. 
remember in the days when everybody was shooting on HD mm-hmm. and Jim Jannard said, this is not good enough. HD is not good enough. And the reason we are now shooting on 4K cameras is because of Jim Jannard, amongst others, but primarily because he was able to push that thing along. Because there were manufacturers that were saying to me at that point in time that HD was fine. Like I remember, I won't name the companies that were doing that, but there are some companies that were producing HD digital cameras that said, this is all you need. And I respect the fact when people say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not good enough. Or we don't, let's not stop there. Let's keep improving. That that was actually every company that didn't have a 4K camera at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It was because everybody went, well, and again, I I know the difference between color and data. And let's not get into a debate about is 4K better than 2.8K? Because I remember there were debates aplenty at that point in time. That's not the point that I'm getting at. The point that I'm getting at is the improvement. That somebody said, it's not good enough, let's make it better. And that's, I love that attitude. That's, we shouldn't stop progressing. We shouldn't stop improving. Greg, I, I think that that's a really great place to leave it. Now we've left it three times. But hopefully hopefully that, Ben Katz uh, will cut out the, uh, the other two <laughs> false endings. Ben Katz will cut, out, will cut out the others. So Greg, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Congratulations for Dune. It's just an astonishing piece of work that I think people are going to be People are going to be referencing this movie, you know, for the next 50 years. You you have so many things in your career that I think are like any one of them would be the biggest bragging right anyone had in their entire life. So congratulations for this. And uh, we look very, very, very forward uh, to seeing the Batman in March. Before we leave, where can people uh, find your work or interact with you? Uh, social media, website, any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, I sort of am a little bit active on, on Instagram, um, a little bit active on Twitter. A little, I have a website, but I don't know, like it's a kind of, I'm trying to juggle that part of my life as well. You know, yeah. I'm trying not to be too alert on those on those mediums. So it's, I, often I'll try and just keep my head down and drive forward, you know, with a, particularly if I'm on a project. So yeah, Instagram's not a bad place to be. Yeah, people can check out some of your pictures, get a little behind the scenes stuff, maybe interact with you. Anyway, and, and we can't encourage our listeners enough to check out Dune. Uh, thanks again for, uh, for coming on the show, Greg. It's always great to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Good to chat to you. So that was Greg Fraser, and I intend fully to hold him to his absolute blood oath that he would come back and talk to us about <laughs> The Batman. <laughs> Blood oath. Yeah, him agreeing to come back was a blood oath. Okay, great. I, I blood oath. <laughs> I sent uh, demons, winged demons, there to uh, with a contract, and it was all all signed, and, and, and it's all done. So, all right. Greg Fraser, we will see you at the Batman. Hey, uh, Ben, let's pay some bills. It's that oh, time. Awesome. We haven't haven't done that in a couple of weeks. Well, let's uh, start off by thanking the fine people over at Assemble.TV, uh, the people who uh, gave us the uh, wonderful promo code of Cinepod, C-I-N-E-P-O-D. If you go over to Assemble.TV, you can punch in that code and you can get a month free of their service. Boom. It's really great. So if you've got a project, which you probably do if you're listening to this, or maybe you have one coming up and it's less than a month long, you could potentially do the entire project for free. If you enter the promo code Cinepod when you sign up, I know that they're a sponsor, but I have to say they are awesome. It's worth it for the calendar alone. It's so it's so damn cool. It's a great calendar. But I uh, I don't have a current project to be working uh, using it on. But the second I have one, I am going to push it as hard uh, on the producers as I possibly can. 
Let's also thank the fine people over at Airy, returning sponsor of the show. They've got something new. They released a, a product a couple years back now called the Orbiter. And the Orbiter is this really clever lighting instrument that does all kinds of really great things. And now they've announced that they've got new accessories, a docking ring and more. And this supposedly is going to open up the Orbiter light to third-party accessories. You're going to be able to put third-party optics, third-party softboxes on there. They don't specify which ones those are, but they basically say any that fits inside of this framework, and there's going to be some dimensions that they, they list on their website. But really, the number one sort of third-party accessories right now are based on Bowen's mount. Maybe they can't say Bowen's for some reason or another, but that's a pretty interesting, pretty big deal that Aerie, which has their uh, proprietary connection, of course, for their own products, is now opening it up to the uh, to the third-party market, which is pretty cool. And I got to say that the Orbiter is a very capable light, and uh, to be able to have this new flexibility is, a, is, is really huge. Congratulations, Aerie. That's fantastic. Always way ahead of everybody with innovation, uh, Aerie's products are the best. And now, short ends. So, Ben, uh, what's your short end this week? What's your obsession? What's going on with you? Well, uh, being the dad of a toddler, I don't have a whole lot of time to watch stuff. And we're in the middle of Oscar season, so I'm trying to watch as many of the screeners some in some cases because I'm interviewing the cinematographers. But I got a little sidetracked on a TV show that is on Showtime that is called Yellow Jackets. And mm. if you haven't seen Yellow Jackets... Holy crap, you have to see Yellow Jackets. I, I was watching it uh, last night. I'm completely caught up now on all the episodes, so now I have to just watch the new ones as they come out like a peasant. And it's it's like part lost, part alive, part... God, I, I it's it's hard to even... Alive, s- the, the movie about cannibalism and the plane crash and the Andes? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> they they And they deep tease cannibalism in the first episode, and then you Whoa. don't really get to see it for a while. Uh, it's got Melanie Linsky and Juliette Lewis and Christina Ricci and several other actors. Those are the ones that I, I knew their work the most going in. And they have teenage versions of themselves. So it kind of takes place in the modern day, and then it takes place in like 1994 when they're all in high school and <laughs> and as fun. total happenstance would have it sammy hanratty who plays young christina ricci i actually worked with her on chosen on crackle nice uh, which i was second unit director on but she was very young then she she might have been 18 at that time and uh you could tell she was somebody who was like on her way to go somewhere and the character she plays in this the character of misty is uh insane a crazy crazy character juliette lewis uh christina ricci they're almost like in a buddy movie together somehow in this thing. And it is dark as hell and it looks amazing. And uh, for Gen Xers like yourself and me, we will uh, certainly enjoy the nonstop 90s soundtrack of uh, a lot of cool grunge bands, but also a lot of just other stuff kind of creating this kind of 90s soundscape that that underscores everything that happens after this plane crashes in this remote area and all these girls who are on the soccer team together are kind of stranded together and it takes place in in both time periods and if we ever get one of the cinematographers on the show and maybe we will i would want to ask them it does something interesting because most times if you have a, a show where you're in two different time frames the way it's shot or the color palette or something like there's some kind of treatment on one or the other you know uh it's black and white in the past or whatever and this 
they often cut from the past to the present and like it takes a second you have to see an actor before you're like oh that's the present oh that's the past and it's a very conscious choice on their part and i think it's very interesting uh one slight other plug the last episode of the season which has not dropped yet is directed by our friend ed sanchez eduardo sanchez yeah 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 very cool so uh we should probably get ed on the show at some point you know he's been killing it in tv he's he's been directing a lot of television over the last several years and uh i'm really excited to see what he does in this world because obviously he's got some serious horror bona fides and this show kind of walks a weird line of being like on the one side, kind of a mystery, like the stuff happening in the present is kind of a mystery, and the stuff happening in the past is a very slow-burning but very compelling horror story. Like what happens with this group of, of uh, stranded girls and a couple of guys is all horrifying, and uh, and it, it's just a wonderful show. So uh, if you have Showtime, if you have the ability to check it out, can't recommend it highly enough. Yellow Jackets. Well, actually, in, in proper drug dealer fashion... Showtime will give you the first episode of Yellow Jackets for free on their website. You can go there and you can watch the series premiere. But after that, that's a paywall. You're going to have to uh, subscribe or get the week free or go to, you know, Amazon or one of the other sources to continue watching if you like it. I'm going to check it out. So, uh, so that's yeah, cool. Check, Thanks, Ben. Check it out. Uh, and, and I should also obviously shout out the cinematographers on it. It's Julie Kirkwood, Trevor Forrest, and C. Kim Miles. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. Hey, my uh, short end this week. I'm a little conflicted about it. I, I really am because typically in my position, you know, running hot red cameras, I'm privy to a lot of information before it goes out to the public. Uh, you know, different manufacturers like to to bring me or my team into the loop and have us consult about certain things, and then then announcement happens, and there's there's a really nice announcement that's coming up for Panasonic in, uh, and I think it's going to be March this year. That I already know everything about it. It's 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 really interesting. I'm not giving anything away. They've already talked about it, so people know that that this announcement announcement for their next camera thing is happening. Canon, on the other hand, who I, I do lots of work with and very, very tight and everything else, has had something sort of secret burning for a long period of time. I know nothing about it. And just in the last day, I think yesterday, they finally put out the notices and said, hey, stay tuned. You know, it's an, it's an announcement about an announcement on January 19th at 7 a.m. Eastern. So I guess that's going to be like 4 a.m. Pacific. They're going to drop their next big thing from the Cinema EOS, you know, division. They don't say what it is. There's a picture of a guy standing on a cliff or something like that in silhouette. You have no way of knowing what it is. Might be a camera, might be something else. But Cinema EOS, when they say that, it's usually a camera. And Mm. uh, it's been on their Twitter. It's kind of out there. This the Canon USA Pro. I mean, I could really probably twist some arms if I I had to. But I have a feeling that if it was something that I I really need to know about, I'll probably get an email like the day before and be like, hey, by the way, you should be prepared for this because this is coming. So they sent out this Twitter message. It just says it's coming. And then they put this exact same graphic that's been widely repeated now throughout the, the Internet, which just says Cinema EOS ready for anything oh boy <laughs> okay ready it's, for anything it's Stay a robocop the, they've yeah. made a robocop they have like a cop who was shot up and is missing limbs and they've put him in a robot shell and he's gonna go fight crime he's that's ready for what, anything that's what canon's gonna do now it's robo well, cameraman it's it's so, a cameraman who was who who had a, a serious medical problem and they just put his brain into a robot and and now he's the ultimate he, like you can buy him uh, I, I really don't know what it is, but Canon, of course, extremely influential in this industry. The Canon C70 is blowing up big time. A lot of people are using it for a lot of different things. It's really an, an incredible little camera. 
And man, I, I, I don't know what their next thing is going to be. I'm yeah. If it's a camera, I'm willing to, to wager money that it's going to be RF mount. They really seem to be mm-hmm. uh, investing in that. I think that's the case. It'll have some sort of RF mount or RF mount option, but I don't know. I don't have long to wait. It's really just a week, a week from today. They're going well, to announce I always, it early. In the I always want to know, man, Canon, I, I love, I love their products and I've used my 5d, you know, I've worn it down to the nub. Like I, I haven't shot anything on it in a minute, but uh, man, have I gotten a lot of miles out of that camera? And I feel like that's one of the things you always want. You want to get a if you're going to spend a few thousand dollars even on on a piece of gear, you want to know it's going to be around for a while. Yeah, they, they they make some really good stuff, and for many years now, they, they've really dominated in the documentary division of like the Academy mm-hmm. Awards, and the C three hundred line has been gangbusters for them, really incredible. So, so yeah. I always I always wonder too, and this is something that I don't know that we even have an answer to, but like, how many big budget studio films do they like have a splinter unit that's going and pulling off inserts with those Canon cameras, and and the, their stuff is just threaded into everything you watch. I know that happened on the movie Rush. I think you were telling me about that Rush. They used some Canon stuff for for that, and I don't. I don't know how many other movies are, are like they that. used every camera on rush i mean uh todd hallowell the producer was like you know they were using gopros they were using you know i think their main cameras were alexas but yeah i mean like i remember even hearing i mean this goes way 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 back but it was like iron man 2 hmm. they were i weren't they were they using your mods when you were modifying the 5d mark ii <laughs> I don't know if it was Iron Man 2. I'm going to have to say, I'm going to have to plead the fifth. I, re- I really don't know. I don't think so. I know that they used our mods on like Fast and Furious 5 with a bunch of other cameras. And I, I think, it, I don't know what it's about the uh, the car movies, but it's like, hey, <laughs> if we can strap it into a place or fit into it to a thing, uh, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll go for it. And so I know we did a lot of stuff for the, the Fast and Fast 5. Wow, so sounds like Fast Five is happening behind your your it really is. your house right now. <laughs> you know, it, it's pretty it's pretty interesting. You know, in in Hawaii, I don't think I heard one siren the entire time I was there, and now I'm back 24 hours, and I think this is like the 11th. So, <laughs> no man, uh, you know, hey, welcome back to Los Angeles. It's a it's slight hey. slightly a few more people here. So. <laughs> Well, uh, well, that's awesome, man. I think that that about wraps us up. Who do we need to thank this week? Hey, let's thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz, thank you for making us not sound like complete blathering idiots. I know uh, I made it harder on you today. I know I talk like a dope. So, yeah, I mean, like I, I it's very helpful. Let's also thank Alana Cody. She's uh, lined up several amazing interviews. We have a few coming up. I might have uh, spilled the beans on one of them in this episode. Dun, dun, dun. I, I, I just conducted it a few days ago. Um, yeah, let's thank Alana Cody. And as always, let's thank Kay's Alatracci, who provided every scrap of music you have heard in this. And you can uh, check out his work at musicbykays.com. Yeah, I think you you summed it up nicely. Uh, ben, where can people find you if they want to track you down? Please go to Needs a Werewolf on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> it's a group called Needs a Werewolf. Join it up. Pitch your werewolf stuff. I recently came across some uh, green screen CGI werewolf material on YouTube that's like free. This, whoever's making it is just like publishing it. And I intend to put it into Notting Hill. That was that was uh, a lich's suggestion is I, I might take some scenes from the Notting Hill trailer at least and see where, where a werewolf could fit. Because Notting Hill, that as a movie... It needs a werewolf. Other than that, you can uh, you can definitely find me at benrockonline.com, and that is uh, where you'll find all my social media connections. And also, you can check out my reel and stuff. How about yourself? Where can people find you? They can find me over at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com, presenting sponsor of this podcast. Uh, I'm going to be back there as soon as I get my negative COVID test, hopefully in the next 
24 hours or so. Uh, otherwise, yeah, if you look me up on the, the Facebooks or the LinkedIn's or the Instagrams, I, I'm generally there at, at Ilya Friedman. So hit me up. I'm, I'm happy to help with whatever you got going on. By the way, uh, in the last week, week and a half, I believe I have had five COVID tests. Woo! Well, hey, uh, I just heard that Biden signed into law that up to 14 tests per month will be covered by your insurance automatically. And that, I think, includes if you go have to go out and buy a test, you can, like, get reimbursed or something like that. They just need to, like, they need to have market competition and drive them down so that they just cost two bucks and no one will care. But whatever. It's all good. I, I, saw, I saw something great today that said, hey, whoever was responsible for the AOL CDs in the early 90s of getting those out, you know, 10 per every American... Get that person out of retirement and make them responsible for COVID testing. For real. That is such a good idea. I really feel like that's the uh, ethos we've had. Yeah. I mean, I've had two in-person PCR tests and three at-home rapid tests in the last week. And uh, I studied for them all. (laughs) Good. And And, and you keep passing. I aced them all. (laughs) I meant... Well done. (laughs) So uh, until next week when we have uh, some more COVID talk... Hopefully not. We should go ahead and sign off. Uh, We will see you next week. Hey, thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.